Since uh, Genesis chapter 3, things have been spiraling out of control. After the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden, the first couple were expelled from God's presence to the east. Then Cain, their son, committed the first murder. Uh, he was also banished further to the east, where he founded a city. He, he was, in a sense, trying to reclaim something his parents had lost in the Garden of Eden. In the end, however, more violence ensued. Cain's great-great-great-grandson, Lamech, killed a man simply for wounding him, and he promised vengeance 77 times over for anyone who even harmed him. And the spiral of sin and rebellion and destruction widened and deepened. And there, in the book of Genesis, Cain's lineage ends in the pages of Scripture. Cain's name pops up 22 times in the Old and New Testament. 19 of those times are found by the time you get to the end of chapter 4 of Genesis. The other three are in the New Testament, and they're all negative in context. In chapter 5, however, the story shifts to Adam and Eve's third son, Seth. Now, is it too much to say that Seth, perhaps, is God's third attempt to get things on the right track? Now, we might immediately ask how God would need three attempts since that implies that the other two failed. And we, don't, we don't like what that might say about God. However, that is how the story is presented to us. The first attempt was with Adam and Eve in the garden. The second was with Cain and Abel. And now in Seth, God seeks to get things back on track once more. It, doesn't, it does not fail because of God. When things fail, it's because of the involvement of imperfect human beings who make mistakes and sin. You will notice we did not have a scripture reading this morning. Uh, that's because Genesis 5 is pretty much 32 straight verses of a genealogy. Descendants of Adam and Eve via Seth's line. Not very interesting reading. Turns out not very interesting to listen to either. So I'm going to read certain parts of it as we go. Also, it has all these names and people hate it when they have to read names in the Old Testament. So this morning, we're going to spend some time considering three stops along the way in this lineage from Adam's line through Seth, these 32 verses. These three stops are all associated with three people whose lives are produced in, uh, introduced in the passage, Seth, Enoch, and Noah. Seth, Enoch, and Noah, for it turns out that these are the only names in this genealogy that come to us with some commentary attached. In each of these cases, the formula for how the lineage is written down is different than it is for all of the other people named in Genesis chapter 5, and that sets them apart. Furthermore, in this lineage, women aren't mentioned by name. It's, it's all about fathers. Now, we could say, what a nice coincidence for Father's Day. Happy Father's Day, by the way. But the truth is, it's simply one more picture of the consequences of the sin in the Garden of Eden. Women and men struggle with one another, just as God said they would. And more often than not, in the ancient world, when that struggle happened, men are the ones who won. So the ones here who get the headlines in Genesis 5 are men. Seth. Our first stop along the way is Seth. We were introduced to Seth late in last week's passage. He was born to Adam and Eve as their third son, a gift from God provided in place of Abel, and we could also say Cain. 
The first few verses of chapter 5, we can hear the announcer as if it's a TV show previously on the book of Genesis, because he recaps things for us. This is written, chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. This is written, the written account of Adam's family line. When God created mankind, he made them in the likeness of God. He created them in male and female and blessed them, and he named them mankind when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. So when Genesis 5 speaks of the birth of Seth to Adam and Eve, he is clearly borrowing from the language of Genesis chapter 1, but with a twist. While Adam and Eve were created in God's image in chapter 5, verse 3, Seth is made in Adam's image, in Adam's likeness. This means that two things are true. First, Seth is made in God's image because he is still a human being and we are made in God's image. And second, that image is now distorted. The image of God within is now distorted. The the beauty of humanity made in God's image is mixed with the brokenness and sin that we have seen since chapter 3. It is an inescapable reality for all of us. We too are both made in God's image and in Adam's image. We are capable of beauty and goodness and truth and ugliness and evil and falsehood. The image of God and the image of Adam are present in us all. The late Russian novelist Alexander Solzhenitsyn put it this way, The line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart, And through all human hearts, this line shifts. Inside us, it oscillates with the years. And even within hearts overwhelmed by evil, one small bridgehead of good is retained. We are a mixed bag. We do not get it all right, and we do not get it all wrong. In Seth and all who follow him, we see that there is great complexity in human beings. The line between good and evil, between the image of God and the image of Adam, runs right down the middle through every human heart. Amid this complexity, however, there was hope. Even for those people who lived in the time of Genesis chapter 5, Enoch. Our second stop along the way is Enoch. Once again, between Seth and Enoch, the formula for talking about each of the people named is standard. It looks like this. When person named number one had lived so many years, he became the father of person named number two. After he became the father of person named number two, person named number one lived so many years, and he had other sons and daughters. Altogether, person named number one lived so many years, and then he died. Hence why it doesn't make really great listening. But as I mentioned before, Seth's introduction was a slight departure from this formula. So is Enoch's. After reading that, Enoch was born to Jared, making him Adam's great, 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 great grandson. We read this summary of his life. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. After he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked faithfully with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enoch lived a total of 365 years. Enoch walked faithfully with God, then he was no more because God took him away. So in addition to Enoch's faithful walk with God, 
we are also told that one day he was no more because God took him away. According to tradition, this meant that Enoch did not die, as did all the others in Genesis 5. But that God simply took him to live with him. And that's quite a relationship, a special relationship that God and Enoch had. Over the New Testament, in Hebrews 11, we are told that this is indeed what happened to Enoch. By faith, Enoch, verse 5, chapter 11, was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. Very little is said about Enoch in Scripture, and yet he makes the list of the faithful in Hebrews 11, and he is the seventh He is in the seventh place in the lineage from Adam, and in ancient genealogies, the seventh place was special. It was reserved for outstanding people. Likewise, a tradition grew up around Enoch that he experienced some kind of special communion with God. But honestly, all of this says as much or more about God than it says about Enoch or us. Our ability to walk with God in a way that pleases God is not based on our perfection or our sinlessness. It's based on our response to the grace of God. Our ability to walk before God in a pleasing way is not based on our perfection or our sinlessness. It's based on our response to God's grace. God was was gracious, God was forgiving even before He gave us His one and only Son. In other words, God's character did not change after the coming of Christ. Our perception of God's character changed. God's character did not change after the coming of Christ. Our perception of God's character changed. For God did not send his son so that he could be forgiving and gracious. God sent his son because he was already forgiving and gracious. And Enoch discovered that grace and managed to live into it. And if if there was hope for Enoch, one who was made in God's image and in Adam's image, as we are, well, there's hope for us. There's hope for us. Seth has shown us our condition, our complexity. Enoch shows us our potential. We can commune with God. We can walk with God, we can fellowship with God, we can experience God, we can know God, we can be known by God. There's one more person we want to consider in this genealogy, skipping down to Genesis 5, verses 28 and 29. We meet a descendant of Adam and Eve named Lamech, not the same Lamech that we met in last week's passage in Cain's line. This is a kinder, gentler Lamech. Genesis 5, 28 and 29. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he had a son. He named him Noah and said, He will comfort us in the labor and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. So we've looked at Seth. We've looked at Enoch. And now the third stop on this journey through Adam and Eve's lineage takes us to Noah. Noah's name means rest. Rest. Through Noah, Lamech says, God will bring comfort to humanity and to the ground that God has cursed. Lamech's words give us one of those wonderful hyperlinks again. If we click on that link, several words in this passage, they take us back to Genesis chapter 3. After Adam and Eve disobeyed God in the garden, we read this in Genesis 3.17. 
To Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. Noah, in, in some way, will undo the curse God placed on the ground. And in this way, Noah will live up to his name. He will give us, he will give the land rest and the comfort we long for. Now, it may be difficult for us to see all of that now, since most of us know where this story is going. How How will there be rest? How will there be comfort when God floods the land? We're going to have more time to look more deeply at this in the, in the coming weeks. Greg Lauk, who's leading worship next week, has already made a list of all the songs he can't sing, one of them being Oceans. Okay. Even the one this morning, the first one had a nice little line in it about flooding. I looked over at Greg and he's going, yeah, can't use that one either. And you can pray for me in the next coming weeks as we try to work through this, and, and particularly for Pastor Kristen because she gets the chapter on Drunk Naked Noah. She thinks we're in, in for her, we're not. It's just, it's just happened that way. The word translated as comfort in Genesis 5.29, when Lamech says that Noah will bring comfort, we will comfort the line of Adam, is, is a word that is used elsewhere um, to speak to God's people while they are in exile in Babylon in the 6th century B.C. <clears throat> so in Isaiah chapter 40, God tells them this. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And these these themes of, of, of exile that we find in Isaiah 40 are very similar to the imagery we talked about last week and what it means to be east of Eden. Remember that Cain settled east of Eden in the land of Nod. To be east of Eden in the first 11 chapters of Genesis is to be further removed from God's presence. The further east you go, the further away from God and God's presence you are. And guess where ancient Babylon was in relationship to Jerusalem when the people of God were sent into exile. Due east. 1,678.2 miles to the east to be exact. To their way of thinking at that time, they have never been further from the presence of God than they were in exile. This theme of exile, which is all over both our Old and New Testaments, it is all over Genesis 2. We see it when Adam and Eve are banished from the Garden of Eden. We see it when Cain is sent further east as a part of his punishment into the land of Nod. We see it later when Jacob flees Esau because he's afraid of him, because he has stolen his birthright and his father's blessing from Esau. We even see it when Joseph is sold into slavery further on in the book of Genesis in Egypt. Even the story of Noah and his family on the ark is a kind of exile. And yet it is through Noah, it is through Noah, strange as it may seem, that God promises to comfort the land. But now, as we've been asking all along, how do these three stops in the lineage of Adam lead us to Jesus? Let's begin with Noah and we'll work our way backwards. Once again, once again in Noah, Lamech promises comfort. 
Referring to this promised comfort, renowned scholar, uh, Walter, Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann says this. He says, This anticipation of the work of Noah placed in the mouth of Lamech is a gospel announcement. This anticipation of the work of Noah is a gospel announcement. That is, it speaks to the purposes of God, which will most clearly be demonstrated and accomplished in the coming life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and, <clears throat> and in the gift of the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus promised to send upon us and into us, and whom he referred to as the Comforter. Enoch. Enoch is a picture of the potential God has placed within all of us, and it is a picture of God's hope and desire for us all, that we would learn to walk with God faithfully, to fellowship with God, to know God, to be known by God. Why? Because God desires relationship with us. In the Garden of Eden, we were told that sometimes God would come to walk with the man and the woman in the cool and breezy part of the day. And to this, scholar John Goldengay makes this beautiful observation. In Enoch, he says, it is as if the relationship that was spoiled in the garden so that God and Adam could no longer go out for a walk is marvelously renewed. Enoch walks with God when Adam and Eve could no longer do so. This good news hints at the good news yet to come in Christ Jesus because, again, in Christ's life, death, and resurrection, we too can now walk with God. We can commune with God. Because of the coming of the Holy Spirit who dwells within those who have come to know Christ, we can commune with God. We can experience God as much or much more than Enoch. This is what the Apostle Paul refers to in Galatians 5 as walking by the Spirit or being led by the Spirit. <clears throat> Seth. And in Seth, we are given a picture of who we are. Made in God's image and in the image of Adam. We are a mix. We are a mashup. We are complex. Don't believe me, ask the Apostle Paul. Romans chapter 7, Paul laments, verses 15 to 23, he laments that there are two natures at war within him. After stating that he cannot do the good he wants to do, instead he does evil, he sums it all up in verses 21 to 25. So I find this law at work, Paul says, although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Years ago, I was in a, a men's group, a Bible study, and we were talking, we weren't looking at Scripture yet, we were talking about temptation. I think was the topic. And there's a guy in, in the group, his name is Ted, and <clears throat> he, is, um, he is talking about how hard it is, temptation is so hard for him. He goes, I don't know what to do. He goes, I really don't want to do this, but I do it. And I said, well, let me read you something. And I read this passage, he goes, can you read that again? This understanding that we are always warring within us, but that in fact it is Christ who delivers us from the sin that seeks to enslave us. That will not mean, once we've been delivered, that we will never sin again. 
It will not mean that we will never sin again. It will mean, simply put, as some like to say it, sin remains, but it no longer reigns. Sin remains. We're still going to sin, but it doesn't reign over us. It doesn't enslave us. And according to the Gospel of Luke, Christ comes through, to us through Seth's line. Luke records uh, his genealogy of Jesus in chapter 3, verses 23 to 38, at the top of it. Now, Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph. And then after, let me see how many I said, 30 generations, we get down to verse 36 or so, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. <clears throat> Abel is dead. Cain is wandering in the land of Nod, surrounded by violence and sin. But Seth, Seth is the one through whom God's promises will come to fruition. In Seth, and in the people who have descended from him, not only do we have complexity, we have hope. We have hope. God's third attempt to move things forward toward the coming of the Messiah has worked. Imperfectly and very messy at times, if you look at the people listed, but it worked. God has radically accommodated us in our sin and messiness in order to get to this final stage of his rescue mission. So there are more things we could say about Noah <clears throat> and Enoch, but I really want us to land and just focus a bit more, reflect a bit more on Seth. Whoever we are, if we feel we do not measure up, if we feel imperfect, Seth is our patron saint. He is the picture of our reality, our human condition. We are all a mix of good and evil, of the divine and the very human, made in the image of God, tainted by the image of Adam. There is a line separating good and evil that runs through every single one of us. This is where God reminds us that his grace is sufficient for us all. That he has the power to make up for and even use our brokenness and the consequences of our sin for his glory, for his purpose. And while we may rightly, I think, want to debate why God couldn't or didn't act more decisively and sooner to get things back on track, why it took so long, the truth is, to this day, throughout history, God has, and throughout Scripture, God has always worked through persuasion, not coercion. God has always changed us and the trajectory of society by entering into it, by in some way becoming a part of it, most ultimately and intimately in the coming of Jesus. This is how God works. And that's a long process. A messy process. People in the Bible, before we get out of the book of Genesis and well beyond, will do stupid things. Evil and deceptive things. R-rated things. But God does not give up on them. God does not give up on us. God keeps entering into our lives and our relationships and our culture and our governments and our organizations seeking to persuade us, seeking us to draw us forward. Seeking to accomplish His perfect purposes in and through imperfect people. If 
if we will learn to yield to the presence and the voice and the leading of God's Holy Spirit. That doesn't mean that we can't be angry or offended or critical of movements or people in society and the world. It means that we trust that God is always at work and that we seek to hear how and when we can partner with God in the work that God is doing in the world. For while God's work through the miraculous is always a possibility in the pages of Scripture and down through history over and over, God chooses to work in us and with us and through us, His sometimes very imperfect people. So, the day the African American churches celebrate the Emancipation Proclamation itself is New Year's Day. A few years ago, Kim and I attended a one of these services here in Lafayette, and we walked into the church, and we were greeted by a young man there, and I introduced myself and told him that I was a pastor, and he quickly ushered me down into the basement where the African-American pastors leading the service were gathered in prayer. And I talked with them afterwards. They were glad to see me, and one of them said, well, since you're here, would you read the Emancipation Proclamation? I had not counted on that. <clears throat> I was, as I was reading it, before I stepped up to read it publicly, because I'd never read it before in my entire life, as I was reading it, I was shocked to discover, and some of you may know this, I did not at the time, I was shocked to discover that it did not state that all enslaved people were to be set free. It does not say that. Only those people who were enslaved in states not under union control were set free. Did you hear that? It did not set free all enslaved people. It only set free, at that time, people who were enslaved in states that were not under union control. William Seward, President Lincoln's Secretary of State, remarked, quote, we show our sympathy with slavery by emancipating slaves where we cannot reach them and holding them in bondage where we can set them free. The work of the proclamation was so imperfect. Abraham Lincoln, imperfect. The freedom promised by the proclamation was delayed for many. The, the last to hear of their emancipation were enslaved people in Galveston, Texas on June 19, 1865, some two and a half years after the Emancipation Proclamation was signed. And the 13th Amendment to the Constitution formerly abolishing slavery, which was passed just under six months after that, was also very imperfect. It contained within it a loophole allowing African-American prisoners to be enslaved through a practice known as convict leasing. None of these things have accomplished all that needed to be done and still needs to be done. It was a mixed bag. The line of good and evil ran right down the middle of it all. It still does. And yet, and yet yesterday, at the Juneteenth celebration in Columbian Park, the joy was palpable. 
I guarantee you that everyone there knows it was imperfect. Everyone there can tell you about the 13th Amendment. Everyone there can tell you about convict leasing, mass incarceration. They can. Pastor Rodney Lynch and others who spoke and sang and those in attendance were able to celebrate the work that had been done even while acknowledging it was not perfectly done and there was and is still work to do. Now, on the one hand, I say all of this to you with no uh, small amount of hesitation. The last thing, the last thing I want to do is to diminish the very real importance of this holiday by turning it into a mere metaphor. It's too important for that. On the other hand, it does have something to say to us. God works through imperfection. God can bring justice in the midst of injustice. We could put a sign on the door out here that said, no perfect people allowed, and you'd all still be here. If you're honest with yourself. You could hang a sign on your door, no perfect people allowed, and you and your family could still come in and out. All your friends could still come in and out. That is not to excuse our sin. That is not to excuse our unjust decisions and practices, personally or as a nation. Nor is it an excuse to ignore our imperfections. That's not, that's not what I'm saying. It's simply to acknowledge that God is still at work, that God continues to work through the Emancipation Proclamation, through the 13th Amendment, and through the imperfect attempts to rectify the injustice of the past 400 years. It is simply to acknowledge that God is still at work in His imperfect church universal, and man, it is imperfect. And through this local congregation, which is led by imperfect people, yours truly included. It is filled, it is run, it is funded by imperfect people. Always has been, always will be. God's kingdom remains. God's purposes remain. God's character is unchanged. We do not lean on our own understanding or goodness or intelligence or faithfulness. We lean on God's goodness. We lean on God's presence. We lean on the work that God has done in Christ Jesus and the work God continues to do in and through us. Forgiveness, restoration, redemption. We lean on God and we trust that God is always at work even through us. We give ourselves to God. We give ourselves to God's purposes. We ask for the filling of the Holy Spirit. We ask for God's anointing on what we do. We ask God to lead us and direct us in the decisions we make. And we seek to be obedient to those things. But we will always do it imperfectly. And yet we celebrate. God is still on his throne. God is still working in and through us. And God always will be. Would you pray with me as we close? Good and gracious God, on this day when we come together as your imperfect people to worship you, to celebrate your word to us to tap into your holy spirit that is present in this place and present in us we give you thanks for all the ways you have down through history poured out yourself upon your people drawn us to yourself corrected us when we sin punished us when we sin and now made a way for us lord god to step into your righteousness in christ jesus god i pray for each of us wherever we are on this day at this moment 
in our own relationship with you. Again, however far in exile or east of Eden we may be, God, that you would show us the way back and you would remind us that you have indeed brought your forgiveness, your redemption, your restoration to bear upon each of us. You are calling us into it. You are giving it to us. And you are calling us to go forward and celebrate it in the world. And may you receive all the honor, all the glory, and all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.